So my name is Jordan. I'm one of the pastors here at Renaissance. Very glad to have you guys with us on this beautiful July day. Uh, when I first got into ministry, uh, my first assignment ever uh, was to work on this big generosity campaign where we were trying to give away over $100,000 in a weekend. Uh, similar to what we did a couple of months ago, we didn't raise 100 some thousand, but we did a similar concept at least. Uh, and if you know me, you know that Jordan Rice is not exactly an event planner. Uh, it's like having Kanye West teach a seminar on humility. It wasn't something that uh, I was tailor-made for. But still, this was my assignment, and it made me pretty uh, neurotic and, and nervous. And I kept on thinking about the things that I was probably forgetting. And I spent the entirety of those weeks frantically worrying about things I might have been forget forgetting, worrying so much about stuff, and it actually made me uh, pretty crazy. And I remember one day, uh, my dad called, and I hit decline because I was in the middle of arguing with the dumpling distributor about what time the dumplings were going to get there. And finally, my dad called back, and I was like, all right, let me just pick up the phone. And he asked me a question, hey, I've been trying to reach you for a little bit. How are you doing? And I was like, man, I've been doing this. And these dumplings, you know what I'm saying, they're going to charge more for pork than they do for chicken. Like, why is that? I mean, pork and chicken is around the same thing. And we're going, I'm going down all of the things that I had been doing and arranging the band and the venue. And, you know, we said no to the lighting on the wall because who needs lights? We're not bougie. And um, <laughs> after about five minutes of going on and on about what I was doing, my dad said, great, how are you doing? His question wasn't about all of the things I had been doing. He was interested in the things that I had been doing. But really, what he called about was not my activity, but who Jordan was and how I was actually doing. Now, I think that, if I'm being honest, uh, much of the way that I see my relationship with God is pretty similar to that. That when God is on the other end of my prayer line, Jesus on the main line, um, the thing that I end up doing is talking about what I've been doing. I've been doing this, or I haven't been doing this, and I usually have those conversations so much so that it's, it's not really about who I am or my relationship or connecting to God at all. In a lot of ways, it's really just a recitation of my resume. It's really just uh, uh, me going over what I've done and what I haven't done. And usually in those moments, I feel good when I'm doing the stuff I'm supposed to be doing, and then I feel bad when I'm not doing the stuff that, I'm not supposed to, that I am supposed to be doing. Really, what that boils down to is uh, my identity oftentimes gets placed in my activity. Uh, my identity, who Jordan is, oftentimes gets corrupted and starts to place that in what my activity is, and uh, that's one of the, the worst ways to cripple your relationship with God, is that you would, sub you would switch these out and you would start to think that your identity and who you are in God, if you have placed your faith in Jesus, or if you're new to church, you aspiring toward a relationship with God, uh, the worst thing you can do is, start to, is to switch out your identity for your activity, to start to believe that the way that God views you is based on how well you've been doing that past week, that past day, that past month. Now, we've been in this series called Philippians, and we've been looking at different pathways to joy, different ways that you and I could develop this settled state of confidence and hope in God. Different ways that you could develop, not something that fluctuates based on a day, but something that is settled, that your heart and your relationship with God would be a settled state of confidence and hope in God. 
Let me tell you the worst way to have joy or the, the least likely path to take you to joy is you thinking about all the things that you have done or haven't done in the past. The fancy term for all of this is called self-righteousness. It's uh, depending on yourself in order to become righteous. It's depending on yourself, uh, depending on what you have done or depending on what you haven't done um, that makes you good in the eyes of God. Self-righteousness basically says that the reason that you and God are Gucci is because I've done this or I haven't done this. Now, in the life of Jesus, oftentimes you see the most critical Jesus ever is. It's not about the people who are thieves and robbers and prostitutes. Uh, Jesus wasn't condoning what they were doing, but the people that Jesus really came for, the people that he was really coming against, were the self-righteous people. Now, I think all of us have this need inside of ourselves to want to prove that we belong with God, to want to prove that we deserve to have a relationship with God, to want to earn it on our own merits. And, and I think that's for a, a number of reasons. Uh, the first is that it's, it's a whole lot easier to measure when you're doing a good job based on your, your own works. It's very easy to measure whether or not you have uh, given a certain amount, you're generous with your money. It's very easy to determine that. All you have to do is go into your bank account and see what you've actually done. It's very easy to see if you're consistent in prayer or in reading scripture or any of the Christian disciplines that are good. It's easy to determine how long, how often you come to a worship service. These are quantifiable, easily measurable things that you can do. And you can feel bad or good depending on how well you've done at them. And I think there's a piece of us that likes how easily we can compute how well we're doing with God, that it's this formula of, God, I've done this, and I've done this, subtract the two, carry the one, and yes, I have the, the, the merit that I deserve good things with God. I deserve this relationship with God. But the second reason I think we do this is a, is a much more dangerous reason. It, it's much more than the fact that you can measure it. It's because deep down inside, you and I want control. You and I want control over our own destinies. We don't want to have to rely on anyone. We don't want to have to rely on this invisible God to somehow make us good with him. We want to be able to control it. That at the end of the day, uh, whether we rise or whether we fall, we can, we've done it our way. Uh, like Frank Sinatra says in his famous song. Now, that makes it hard when it comes to the concept of righteousness. And uh, a good way to describe righteousness is doing what God requires Doing what is right. Now, have you ever thought about what does God require for your life? What does God actually require for your life? What does God say is right for you? And a better second question is, how are you doing on that test? Has anybody said, yep, I'm nailing it, 100%, killing it, killing the game? Uh, the reality is, nobody is. If we were to measure the standard of what God actually requires and where you live, uh, you and I, at best, uh, would fall well, well short of it if we're being honest. And if we're not being honest, if we've deluded ourselves, all we would basically do is basically be saying, I'm doing better than the other people. But either way, uh, that doesn't lead us to confidence and hope in God. That actually leads us to this never-ending pursuit of acceptance, and it's a it's so far away uh, that it's so frustrating to even think about. It's like, it's like being a Knicks fan, right? The championships are so far away that it's just better left not to think about why you just gave Tim Hardaway Jr. $71 million. But 
Hey, so there's two groups of people that Jesus encountered when he first hit the scene, and both of these people struggled with self-righteousness. Um, the first group were these people called Pharisees. Pharisees were people who memorized these laws, and they spent day after day uh, in, the, in the hope of perfecting how well they could follow the law. The second group wasn't nearly as uh, ritualistic. Um, they knew how far away the goal was, so they just said, you know what, I'm not even going to try. They just gave up from the very beginning. And I think that if we were to look at our own lives, all of us tend to go in one direction or another. Either we spend the majority of our day evaluating ourselves based on how well we've done, like the Pharisees, or we've said, you know what, I know I'm not going to reach this level, so I'm just going to give up completely. I'm not even going to come anywhere near this. And this is the reason why a lot of people stay away from church. Uh, I get uh, into conversations all the time where people say, man, like I, I came through the Renaissance before, and yo, it was dope, but yo, I'm not gonna, I'm gonna come back in a couple of months. I got some stuff I gotta just, I gotta work on this stuff over here. I gotta, you know, I, I gotta get out the club, you know what I'm saying, a little something before I, I fully immerse myself. And no, no shade to whoever was in the club last night. Go ahead and be, drop down, and get your eagle on. But um, the, um, essentially both groups feel the same thing. They feel that the only thing that makes me and God good is based on how well I'm doing. Some people, it will lead you to this endless treadmill search with you running as fast as you can on a treadmill, and you're going to look up in a couple of years, find out that you haven't gone anywhere. Others, you're going to run as far as you can in the other direction, thinking that you'll never be good enough to measure up. Now, both of these groups have a lot in common, and they're both pretty miserable. They both believed that their relationship with God was based on what they were doing and not based on what God has done for them. So when God was to call them and ask them how they're doing, they would run down the list of all the things that they've been doing, trying to impress God, like God is going to be on the other line of the phone, like, yo, you did all of that? Yo, you're killing it. Oh, my God, that's amazing. Um, and both of them ended up with the opposite of a settled state of confidence and hope in God. How can you be settled when every single day your spiritual relationship with God depends on what you're doing? How can you be settled at all if you don't do the right thing that you and God would have a divide between you two? Not your friend, not a, a lover. How settled could you be if you and the Creator's relationship depended on whether or not you wake up for Sunday morning worship? It's not going to produce anything settled inside of you. It's going to produce fear, and eventually it's going to produce uh, empathy. I mean, apathy if you're not reaching it. You're going to develop this coldness because you're going to want to run as far away from it as possible. Now, the author of this book that we're looking in today, Paul, uh, knew a little something about uh, this thing called self-righteousness. Uh, he had his PhD in self-righteousness, and he's wanting the Philippian church to develop this settled state of confidence and hope, and he knows that evaluating your relationship with God based on your activity is the antithesis. It is the opposite way uh, to get there. So Paul is wanting us, I think in some ways, to become a little bit less like these uh, Pharisees or people who run away and more like children. If you think about it, children are the most bold and confident people on this planet. If you've ever been around a three-year-old, they will walk up to you in the middle of your favorite show, snatch the remote and just say, mine, and walk away. Uh, my wife and I talk often about my son and some of the stuff that he does. It's pretty ridiculous. Uh, the other day, this dude had this big thing of silly putty. He had it in his hand, and I saw him, like, inching it closer and closer to his mouth, 
I said, Jameson, do not eat that. He looked me right in the black of my eye, and he was like, he took a giant chunk. I hope it's not toxic. We didn't take him to the hospital later. Uh, he didn't eat dinner that night, but he had silly putty, so I'm not too mad about, about that. But the reason he will look you right in the black of your eye and do the opposite of what you say is because he has a boldness and a confidence because he knows this dude loves me. He's not going anywhere. He's not going to stop being my father. Like, Jessica, like, my mother, she's going to adore me no matter what I do, so it doesn't matter. I'll do whatever I want. Uh, and it's our job as parents to coach him away from self-centeredness. It's our job to discipline him. It's our job to raise him. It's our job to get him to stop eating silly putty. Uh, but it's his job to be confident. Uh, I, I think that's why Jesus tells us that if you and I really want to have the kingdom of God living on the inside of us, you don't need to learn more, uh, more knowledge about God. You need to become like a child. In Luke 18, verses 16 through 17, it says, Jesus called the children to him and said, Let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. If you don't receive the kingdom of God like a little child, you will never enter it. Now, I don't think this means that unless you attain this spiritual place, you're going to go to hell. I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about. I think he's saying that the fullness of what it looks like to have God living on the inside of you, the fullness of what it looks like to be living uh, in the kingdom looks like you're, you have a boldness and a hope and a confidence like a little child. Like you can snatch the remote and just say mine and walk away. Now, if you're living your life based on how well you've done, you will never even get close to that type of confidence. You will never get close to that level of intimacy because you're going to spend the, the entirety of your day evaluating how well you're doing or how well you're not doing. And scriptures, like, uh, that we're, like we're going to unpack in a second, that tell us to forget our past will haunt us. Because we're going to be saying if it's, you know, uh, we'll be in this place where we're uh, forbidden from ever moving forward because we'll feel so guilty about the ways that we did not measure up. Or we'll feel so prideful about the ways we think we did measure up. And both of those ways will lead us far, far away from God. So Paul wants us to have this, this joy, uh, like a child, that we would have this settled state of confidence and hope. And he starts off this scripture uh, with the first, with a little warning, uh, a warning against ways that will not lead us towards confidence and hope in God. And it starts off the Philippians 3 like this. He says, further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Now, Paul uses some really strong words, these mutilators, these evildoers, uh, and basically who he's talking about, uh, these aren't people who are cold-blooded killers, uh, these aren't people who are doing anything physical. He's talking about this theological uh, group called the circumcisers. And they were basically saying, in order for you to have a good relationship with God, you need to have faith in Jesus and get circumcised. Now, for all the doctors in the room, Paul is not saying it's a bad idea to get circumcised for medical reasons. He's saying this. There are people who are trying to corrupt your faith by making you feel that the formula for you and God being good is Jesus plus me doing this. Jesus plus me having this in, in check, yes, that equals a good relationship with God. 
Jesus plus me going through this ritual, the this, this circumcision, yes, that finally equals God accepting me. And Paul is saying, listen, if you want to have joy, if you want to have confidence and hope in God, you need to know that Jesus equals everything. Simple and real, enduring faith in Jesus is literally everything. And if you try to add to it, you're going to corrupt the very faith that you're searching after in the first place. And he calls them mutilators in the flesh. And none of you uh, harm yourself physically, hopefully not, in, in trying to please God. Uh, I was in Mexico City a couple years ago during Holy Week, and um, there were this group of people walking down the streets of East of Palapas with these whips, and they had no shirts on, and they were just banging their back like, wow, hitting their backs. And there was this, um, uh, this just street lined with blood from people hitting themselves in the back. And I'm like, yo, Jesus paid it all. I ain't doing <laughs> I ain't doing none of that. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, not, not Jordan's blood. I, I'm sensitive, man. My back is sensitive. I'm ticklish. I, nah, I can't be doing... You ain't going to just have my back all out doing all of that. Uh, there, that's, that example is an extreme example of what we do to ourselves a lot. You may not take out the whip, but you do punish yourself when you don't live up to your standards. You like to make yourself feel really, really miserable... Because if I could make myself feel miserable enough, then I would have paid for it. Even better, when other people do something that's wrong, you want them to feel really, really low. You want them to feel really miserable because that is the way that they pay for it. That what Jesus has done on the cross, yeah, that's cool, but you really need to add to it, you feeling miserable. Now, this is not to say that God doesn't call us to live a life where we repent and we turn away from the things that don't please him. Uh, I am not saying that what we do doesn't matter, but I am saying that why we do things matters a whole lot more than what we do. So Paul continues in the scripture, and he's warning people uh, against this self-righteousness where people think that their righteousness with God depends on what they do. And there's no bigger enemy to your relationship with God than believing that, that your relationship with God depends on you. Because think about it. If your relationship with God depends on you, when have you done a good enough job to deserve it? Pick a day. Pick a six-hour slot. We've never even gotten close to having it. Now, he moves on in his point in verse 4. He says uh, uh, about people who have no confidence in the flesh, he says, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. And here's what he's saying. If anybody were to have a reason uh, to put confidence in what they've done, then it would be me. And here's what Paul is going to do. He's going to list his resume. He's saying, listen, I have the most thorough resume of anybody. That if anybody could say, yes, it could depend on you, I'm telling you it's me. So he goes on and says, uh, if someone else thinks I have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Now, here's what Paul is getting at and as he goes through all of these different things. Uh, by Paul saying that he was um, circumcised on the eighth day, he's, he's basically saying, I'm not a newcomer to this. I was born into this. I didn't just move into Harlem when it became cool. I was born and raised here. And as he continues, he's showing people how much he belongs. If anybody could say they belong, it's him. And he continues and he says, um, 
in regard to the, no, uh, a people of, the, of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin. Not only was he born into this, but he was born into the most elite tribe. So there were 12 tribes of Israel, and Benjamin was one of the two tribes that never betrayed the kingdom. Other tribes went away, they worshiped idols, but the tribe of Benjamin was always pure. And he was saying, I was born into the most pure tribe possible. And as he continues, he says, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Uh, that statement basically means that there were some people who, uh, on the outside, they were Hebrews, but on the inside, they were living like Greek people. They were living like Gentiles. He's saying, this right here is not a fake. This is not a front. What you see on the front is what you get all throughout. And he was a Pharisee. Basically, he's saying, listen, in terms of the understanding of this, I have the best. I went to the most prestigious schools. This is a Harvard degree right here in your face. As for zeal, he persecuted the church. So he wasn't just a bystander, that I was so into this thing that I was the one who persecuted the church. And he goes through his whole list. He says, but whatever I considered gains, I now consider loss. Now, here's why I think Paul is saying this, because Paul is telling us right now, and Paul was writing to this church saying, listen, I have been down this road. If you want to know what it takes to have a great resume, I have one. And I'm telling you, that great resume will never lead you to having a settled hope and confidence in God. It will never lead you there. And Paul is speaking from personal experience that if anybody should know uh, what it takes to, to please God based on what you have done, it's me. I built this resume. My resume is amazing. It's spotless. It's flawless. And it does not lead you to a good place. Uh, last year, I had um, the stomach bug twice. And both times, I was like, this is it. This is how it all ends. I was writing emails to friends like, farewell. Uh, put some green flowers on my grave when the Jets win in 50 years, please. Um, I was positive this is how it was going to end. Uh, and me having the stomach virus, I, I never, ever, ever want to go back to, to that place. And uh, this Christmas, uh, we were in Queens at my grandmother's house, and we called over to Aswan, who's a pastor on staff. And his mother lives kind of right down the street from where my grandmother lived. So we said, oh, we're going to stop by Aswan's house. We get in the house. I said, oh, where's Aswan? He's downstairs, and he has a stomach virus. I was like, nope. They were like, oh, you can go down there. I was like, no, thank you. I know what he looks like. I've spoken to him before. I'll call him later. We do not need to speak. I do not need to get near him. Uh, I have been down that road before, and I never want to go down that road again. It is a maddening, sickening journey that I want to avoid at all costs. And here's what Paul is doing to us. He's saying, I had all of these things. I did all of these things hoping that it would lead me to a good place with God. I did all of these things hoping that I would earn a relationship with God. And I'm telling you, it's a maddening, sickening process that is going to lead you nauseous. Now, Paul is not saying, hey, what you do doesn't matter. Uh, of course you do, what you do matters, um, but why we do things matters a whole lot more. In Ephesians 2.10, Paul says that you and I, anybody who's placed our faith in Christ, that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Uh, so Paul lets us know in other, in other books of the Bible that God has created us. If we are God's children, then we would do good works that God has prepared in advance for us to do. But don't think for one split second that those good works make you a child. Don't think for one split second that a better resume for you uh, equals God being happier with you. Don't think for one second that if you eat the silly putty, God is going to turn around and never love you again. Paul is trying to instill in us uh, a different type of righteousness that comes not from our own. So as he continues um, in verse 7, 
He says, but whatever were um, gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. Now, what he's saying is all of the things I've done, all of the ways that my resume was really impressive, I'm telling you right now, all of this stuff is garbage. It would be like uh, an NBA MVP saying, yeah, I got the uh, award, I got the trophy. I'm telling you, it's garbage. It doesn't mean anything. Now, Paul is warning us because most of us, uh, we try to find value in our lives, and we try to find this settledness based on one of two things, uh, either our trophies, the things that we've accomplished in life, or our tribe, who we are and where we came from. And Paul is letting us know that the things that we are putting our hope in cannot sustain the weight of our identity. Uh, They cannot sustain the weight of a relationship with God uh, that uh, for a number of reasons, our trophies, the things that we have accomplished, the things that we can celebrate, um, those things will never make you feel settled. Those things will never lead you to having real biblical joy. Uh, The first reason is because our greatest accomplishments are temporary. Our great, your greatest accomplishment is temporary. No matter what you do on the field, some kid 50 years younger than you is one day going to just look at you as a novelty, and you'll be uh, a has-been. Uh, years ago, anybody over the age of 35 has watched the show Married with Children, uh, Al Bundy. Um, none of you are over the age of 35, so I'll just keep this to myself. Uh, but this dude was like this, you know, this dirty shoe salesman, that's like he's always disheveled with his shirt never tucked in, always talking about what he did at Polk High School, always talking about his high school days when he you know, made the catch on the football team. And it's pretty pathetic to have someone look back like that and always talking about what he did 30, uh, 40 years ago. And here's what Paul is telling us in the scripture. Uh, your greatest accomplishments are temporary. No matter what you achieve today, it's not going to last permanently. Now, there's nothing wrong with achieving things. Not, Paul had more ambition than anybody. There's nothing wrong with going after it and doing good things. Uh, but there is a serious problem when we think that our trophies, our accomplishments, will somehow merit that God owes us love or that that is the basis for our relationship. Now, one of the uh, funniest stories I heard in the last couple of months that was Jay Leno. Jay Leno was a comedian uh, on the late night show, and for a period of time, he was the most, one of the most popular dudes in Hollywood. His show had great ratings, multi-multi-millionaire, an amazing car collection. And he tells a story about a couple of months ago, he was sitting at a red light, and a woman walks over to him. He's like, no, I'm married. Sorry. Sorry, ma'am. And she keeps coming to the car with a business card. He's like, ma'am, I'm sorry. I'm married. I, you know, yes, I'm Jay Leno. And she's like, um, do you need a nurse? And he was like, uh, no. Uh, basically, in his neighborhood, wealthy older people had home health, ad- home health aid attendants. So this dude who was once one of the most famous dudes in Hollywood is now being propositioned for a home health aid attendant. All of his accomplishments, all of the things that he had done uh, led to nothing, led to him uh, being questioned whether or not he needed a nurse to help him organize his multivitamins. And all of our accomplishments are temporary. Have you ever noticed this about yourself, that no matter how well you've done in a week or a day or a month, uh, that it just doesn't last? That you can't rely on what you've done last week, last month, last year, uh, to somehow make you feel settled and, and, and hopeful? That it's so easy for that to be broken. 
And I think that's because our greatest accomplishments are not only temporary, but they're incredibly fragile. Um, now, in the same way that I would not recommend that anyone sits on those chairs with the red tape on them, they're good to look at, uh, but don't ever sit down on them because they cannot bear the weight of your identity. They cannot bear your weight uh, as a person. In the same way, our accomplishments cannot bear that weight. They are incredibly uh, fragile. As Paul lists all of his accomplishments and all the things he's done, uh, he's saying, listen, I've tried to lean on those before, and each time they've come crashing down. There's this quote about, um, from Madonna years ago, and this is 80s Madonna with a career, not British accent Madonna uh, later on. Um, I don't know how someone from Detroit develops a British accent, but that's a whole other conversation. Uh, and she talked about this in the height of her career, how fragile all of her accomplish accomplishments are, and it really resonated with me. She says, I have an iron will, and all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. And then I hit another stage and think I'm mediocre and uninteresting. Again and again, my drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me, pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. That's not a settled state of confidence. That's the opposite of settled. That's every single day you trying to reinvent yourself. Every single day you trying to prove to yourself that if you had to do it again, you could do it again. And that does not lead us to any real hope and confidence in God. And the last thing that's so uh, dangerous about relying on our trophies or relying on our accomplishments is that when you rely on your accomplishments, it really just leads you to comparison. And there's absolutely no win in comparison. Relying on our accomplishments will always lead us to one of two places, either pride or discouragement. Because here's why. Uh, if you have bigger trophies than other people, like you got the first place joint, all they got was a little participation trophy for showing up that day, and their parents paid their in admission fee. Uh, before you know it, even if you don't do it intentionally, you'll start to, you'll start to feel prideful. Your trophies are shinier and bigger and better than theirs are. They're heavier. They're not made of plastic. It's real metal. Uh, and theirs are small and puny and pathetic. And when you start to evaluate, evaluate yourself based on how well you're doing, the natural result is like the Pharisees. They start to feel better than, and they start to judge other people who aren't doing as well as they are. Now, the other road on that one, the other way that that affects us is this false version of humility called discouragement, where we look at other people's trophies and we say, man, I don't measure up to how well they're doing. And we feel discouraged and we feel like we have no place in God. So Paul warns us against all of this. And he gives us a much better formula for really having this settled confidence and hope in God. And he continues in the scripture and he says, I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. Listen, I had done all these things Paul is saying. And I'm telling you, I consider them garbage because I, what I have found is that the type of joy, the type of relationship I have with God cannot come from me having a righteousness that, uh, of my own that comes from the law. The law, what Paul basically means is his uh, adherence, his following uh, everything that God wanted him to follow. And he continues, he says, but that which is through faith in Christ. There's two different ways you can approach a relationship with God. One is on your own, 
based on your adherence to the law, how well you're doing. The other one comes from faith in Christ. And living a life in faith in Christ is not going to be easily measurable, and it's going to take you well outside of control of the driver's seat. But this is what Paul is saying leads us to a real living, breathing faith. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis, not of how well you're doing today, not of how well you're doing yesterday, on the basis of faith. Scripture has given us something really good here, and pay attention, particularly if the way that you, whether or not you would admit it, the way you approach Christianity is that it's just a set of laws, a set of rules that you have to obey. If you're doing great, good. God is going to remove the velvet rope and let you walk through. If you're not doing well, if you're not good enough, you're not strong enough, you're not woke enough, then God is going to push you out. And you think that when God calls you, uh, he's asking you all the stuff that you're doing and evaluating your behavior, when deep down inside, God is wanting to cultivate this relationship with you that is based on something outside of yourself. So he tells us there's two types of righteousness you can have. One that comes from you and what you've done, the resume that you can present from your life, or the other one is a righteousness, a right standing that comes from God on the basis of faith. And here's what Paul does. He transitions the focus of the readers from self-reliance to reliance on God. From relying on yourself and how well you've done to relying on God. And this is based on something called grace. And grace is the most controversial and disruptive theme in all of human history. Uh, It is nothing like grace in any other human concept. And grace will always, always, always threaten the self-righteous and welcome in the unrighteous. It will threaten your self-righteousness like there's nothing else. Um, And we see this all throughout the Bible, that uh, you and I can have a relationship with God, not based on ourselves, but based on the act of someone else. So case in point, uh, you guys have probably heard of the story of David and Goliath, if you've been to Sunday school before. Uh, David and Goliath is not about you needing to become more brave. A lot of people think that David and Goliath is a story about, you know, this guy David saw the armies uh, scared, so he stands up and says, uh, he stands up and says, I'll do it. And the moral of the story that we sometimes deduce is that God wants you to be brave, even in the face of your enemies. Now, while that's true, God does want you to be brave. That is not the reason that David and Goliath is in Scripture. David and Goliath shows us something about a principle called justification, about you being right in the eyes of God, not based on yourself, but based on the act of another. So here's what was going on in David and Goliath. You have this Philistine army and you have the Israel army, the army of Israel. And both of these armies have decided that we're going to have a one-on-one battle. We're going to have a one-on-one. And whoever wins this one-on-one, that victory will be imputed. It will be given to the entire army as if they had fought themselves. So if you win, David, the entire Philistine army will bow down. The entire Philistine camp will act as if they lost. And you get our land. You get everything, even though it's only just a one-on-one battle. And we know how the story goes. David gets a slingshot hits him in the head and wins, and whether or not the other soldiers were taking a nap, watching Netflix, uh, watching season two of House of Cards on their iPad, or whether or not they were standing on the sidelines cheering, they all got the victory as if they themselves had won it. King David had won it. That victory was given to everybody in the army. Now, when Scripture says that you and I can have a righteousness not of your own, but a righteousness that comes from the basis of faith in Christ, it's basically saying this. King Jesus has gone to the cross. 
He got on that cross and he defeated the Goliath, the enemy, death, hell, and the grave. And if you place your faith in him, to be found in him, to be found in his kingdom is to have all of the victory, even though you yourself didn't work for it. Now, this is the type of righteousness that Paul wants you and I to have because he knows deep down inside, no matter how hard you work, if you take your eyes off of Christ, if you take your eyes for one second and put them on yourself, it is only going to lead you to comparison and pride or, uh, or feeling uh, disgraced and not worthy of anything that God has for us. When all along, God is saying this, I have come down in Christ and I have secured for you what you could never have done for yourself. And if you really want to have joy, if you really want to have a settled confidence and hope, you need to take your eyes off of yourself, your trophies, your tribe, how well you measure up, and you need to put them on the eyes of a gracious Savior named Jesus. And Jesus is good at doing his job. He's the best at it. And when Jesus says that he saves sinners, Jesus saves sinners. He doesn't need you to add anything else to it. There's a scripture in Mark 10 where Jesus says that the Son of Man did not come to, to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Now, anybody who's ever been kidnapped and rescued won't come out of that kidnapping and say, hey, I did such a great job. Uh, you know, I, 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 I made my way out. No, if there's a ransom paid for you, that means you did absolutely nothing in order to deserve your reunification with your family. And here's what scripture is telling us. Jesus fully paid everything that we need and simply placing our faith in him and living as if Jesus is now the king of our lives is the only thing that will ever, ever, ever lead us to having a confidence and hope in God. Now, I found this to become most real in my life, uh, not just from hearing it once, but in every single day applying the gospel to my heart and, and every single day uh, reflecting on those truths and praying that God would make that real to me. Uh, there's a scripture in Romans uh, 8 chapter where, God, where Paul talks about how the Holy Spirit works in the life of the Christian to make that statement a reality that gives us this settledness and this confidence and hope. And Paul says it like this, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves. And here's what Paul is talking about. He's not talking about transatlantic slavery. Uh, he's talking about the Israel uh, slavery in Egypt where their value was measured based on the amount of bricks they produced. If they made more bricks, they were more valuable. And he's saying the spirit that God has given you is not one that makes you, again, a slave, where your identity is your activity, but rather, uh, so that you live in fear again, rather, the spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him, we cry, not boss, not professor, we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, we, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs and co-heirs with Christ. Here's what scripture is getting at, and it uses this courtroom analogy of testifying that every single time you and I sit down to spend time with God, when we quiet our hearts and we quiet the surroundings, that the Holy Spirit will testify, will get on the witness stand and testify, no, 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 you're not a slave. Your value is not based on your, your activity. You are a child. You can eat the silly putty. You can snatch the remote. You are a child. And that's the only thing that will ever lead us to confidence and hope in God. Uh, let us do that now and turn to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, you know all of the obstacles that we have uh, that would lead us away from ever having real confidence in you. 
Uh, you know all of the things that we put our hope in as our trophies. God, teach us what it means to be a child. Teach us what it means to have a childlike faith, to simply embrace what you have done with us in Christ as enough. We ask this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.